This is a testing walker. You reckon we've been slack? Oh, I don't know. Maybe you've been slack. We ain't. We kept it straight. It's all there. Everything marked, everything membered. You wait. You'll see. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. Time's past count. We've done the podcast, so it only right we talk about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 54, which begins with Mr. Skyfish offering an explanation for Max's questions. And it ends with Savannah beginning the story of the Waiting Ones. But as for today, we start this minute with the continued shot of confused children chatting in amongst themselves. No one really has a good explanation for why Max seems to not know his own history. So Mr. Skyfish leans forward and talking to Slake says, I think he'd be testing us. And Slake looks up at Max and says, this attesting walker? I noticed that this is the third or fourth time this week that Max has been referred to as Walker, but he's been referred to as Walker without context. As far as Max is concerned, I think that he hears the word Walker, that title attributed to him, and he's probably thinking that's just what they call people that they find wandering the wastes. They call them walkers. He doesn't grasp the full context and importance of that name. And that makes a lot of sense. What else would they call him if they don't know who he is? They're going to identify him by how they found him or an obvious attribute. So they found him wandering around in the desert. So they could call him Wanderer. They could call him the dehydrated one. They could call him Walker. It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, isn't Walker just a synonym for a wanderer anyway? Yeah. I like this idea that Mr. Skyfish brings up, who, by the way, small side note, he's pretty young, Mr. Skyfish, but he seems to have a fairly prominent voice in the community. People listen to him. Yeah. So I wonder if he has shown maybe maturity beyond his years. Well, I mean, he's 13. He's a teenager. He is not a child in the technical sense anymore yeah so it makes sense that he would have a prominent voice being one of the older children even though he doesn't really look that old yeah and he has seemed to carve himself a unique place in the society being the one with a kite and we kind of suppose that he was the one keeping birds he's made unique in the production sense because he has speaking parts because he is a named character, as opposed to the general mob of children who don't speak and who have all very similar makeup. Mm -hmm. His is unique because he is a named character. Now, Gecko has his radio equipment. Mr. Skyfish has his kites and whatnot. Do you suppose that if Gecko is a facsimile of a radio operator, that Mr. Skyfish is the facsimile of someone who understands lift and drag and the dynamics of flight that could be his role in the tribe he could be a wind catcher or something like that that brings up a good point of joanna being a firekeeper what do you think that translates to probably someone who made sure that the fire kept burning 
Oh, you think so? Yeah. Oh, I don't, okay. I don't know what else you had uh, in so mind. I was wondering how that translated to what she was before the plane crash. Oh, I, I don't know about before the plane crash. Right. I see the phrase firekeep and I instantly think, oh, someone who tends the fire. Oh, okay. Well, along the same lines that because Walker was a pilot, they translated that into he can literally fly. So that idea was based on what he was before the plane crash. Hmm. So I took that Joanna role. Okay, that is a translation of what she was before the plane crash. But maybe not. I mean, you know, someone's got to tend the fire. So why not Joanna? Anyways, back to the point of Mr. Skyfish's line. I think he's testing us. This could be interpreted as another aspect to the savior role that Walker is playing. The idea of testing is quite a common idea in scripture from all around the world. Specifically, the first one that came to mind that a lot of people know the story of Job, who was tested with trials and tribulations and, well, everything with disease and poverty and loss of his entire family, testing his faithfulness to God. So it's a similar idea here that the waiting ones, I can imagine, have faced some rather serious trials. Mm. I mean, they've birthed at least two children, if not more. And trying to figure that whole thing out without any help, that is definitely a trial. And the very fact that Kusha and Savannah are still alive and their children are still alive is a testament to the kids figuring it out and making it work. Yeah. So they have had trials and tribulations. And Slake is eager to show that they have remained faithful to the story and to the waiting. Yeah, he doesn't hesitate. After asking Max if this is a test, he then immediately follows that up with, you reckon we've been slack? And Max more or less playing along, as you mentioned, because he's outnumbered and he doesn't know what to do. And I kind of saw it as him realizing that you can't reason with a pack of children. You just got to play <laughs> their game and see how it goes out. But he says, yeah, I don't know, maybe you've been slack. And Slake almost incensed at the idea that someone would assume that they've been slack. He gets very energetic all of a sudden. He says, oh, we ain't. We kept it straight. It's all there. Everything marked, everything membered. You wait, you'll see. And then as he's talking, he's pushing his way through this crowd of children. He makes his way over to a makeshift gong that just seems to be some sort of piece of metal bushing or something like that. And he picks up a club and he bangs it like a gong. Now, I'm pretty sure that it wouldn't sound like a gong that we hear if you actually hit something like that in real life, because I don't think the resonance is the same as a regular gong. No, But it no. makes for a good sound effect. But I don't even think it would sound like a symbol. But anyway, the opportunity for them to show off how they keep their history to Max is something that Slake is all about. I like Slake's humility. He is the leader of this tribe, but when challenged, however slight that challenge is, Walker does present a challenge and he did just say, I don't know, maybe you have been slack. When challenged, he immediately said, no, 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 let me show you. You're going to be so proud of us. Definitely an attribute of a good leader mm. is humility and being able to say, no, no, we did exactly what you wanted us to do. Look at this, look at this looking for approval. I don't know if I'd call that humility, though. No? I see it more as a desire to prove oneself. I don't know. I, I don't know what I would call it, but I don't know if I'd necessarily say that Slake is being humble in this 
instance, he's looking at Max, who he thinks is Walker. And Walker is this deified symbol to them. This person that represents flight and a returning home and is a very messianic figure. Mel Gibson is no stranger to messianic figures. His film career and acting career kind of shows that off in different roles that he's taken in different productions that he's done. But in this instance, they are like a lost tribe of people that suddenly their savior has descended from the sky and has graced their presence. And so this is their opportunity when he says, show me the books. They say, oh, absolutely. Here are the books. You're going to be so excited to see it. You're going to be so proud. And I guess I understand where you're coming from with the whole humbleness thing. But I don't I just don't know if that's the word I'd use for it. I guess I use the word humble because it's the opposite of prideful. A prideful reaction to this would have been perhaps a physical altercation with Walker returning to save them. And Slate could have reacted like, well... We're doing fine here without you because you didn't come back and save us and we had to build up society again without you. He could have turned it into a physical challenge. Yeah. Which, honestly, they would have taken Max down if they had decided to. Well, yeah. He was definitely right to be worried about that. But instead of saying, we don't need you, you left us, he said, we have done everything we could to do what you told us to do, and here is our proof. Now, anyone who has come in contact with a Mormon before, we've had a lot of Mormon contact because that's how we were raised, so that's kind of where I'm coming from here. In the Mormon book of scripture called the Book of Mormon, the climax of that history, the people in the pre-Columbian American continent are visited by Jesus Christ as in the same one from the Bible. And he descends from the sky and he sits amongst them. And I'm pretty sure he even has the same interaction where he talks about, show me your records, show me your holy words and things like that. And they go and they bring the records so that Jesus Christ can, you know, check them and make sure that they're intact. Am I remembering that right? I believe that you are. The Book of Mormon emphasizes very strongly at several points the importance of keeping records, the importance of remembering where you came from, why you came from there, and the history of your people. And there's even an account of other groups of people who traveled to the Americas long before the main group that the Book of Mormon is about, who did not take records with them and who did not keep records. And it was a major downfall to their society. Yeah, there's like a portion of that book that has kind of a prequel trilogy style flashback. Like if the main chunk of that book is the original three (laughs) Star Wars movies, there's one chunk of the book that is a weird flashback that goes way back in the history to explain where some other people came from. It's a weird time jump. It's kind of strange, but it has to do with the (laughs) layout of that book. It's scripture. It doesn't necessarily have to follow a set path. I mean, the Bible is pretty much an anthology series. So anyway, you remember the story of the Tower of Babel. Everybody in the world had the same language. And so they said, hey, let's build a giant tower to heaven, which I guess would be kind of like an old school space elevator. Like, let's build a tower as high as we can so that way we can reach the heavens. Although they wouldn't be launching spaceships from the top of the Tower of Babel. They'd be. I think you're thinking too grand. It was more their state of pride than the height of the tower. Anyway, the story goes that their language is confounded and they are scattered to the four winds. 
Well, one of those groups jumped in a bunch of boats, sailed across the ocean, landed in America, except they didn't have any books with them. They didn't have a written language. They didn't have a written history. And so over the years, their language degraded to the point where they couldn't even understand themselves. They were so splintered and fractured because they didn't have a unified history to pull from, a unified written history, that they were fractured. That written history that we've been talking about, it's so important and definitely in the Mormon faith and in the Mormon culture that goes along with that faith, written history is extremely important. We're always encouraged to write things down, write mm -hmm. down your story, talk to your family and write down their story. I have from the Smithsonian some information about oral histories and there are some negative side effects that I think if you don't write these things down that your history is subject to some negativities. So the first one is the accuracy of your oral history. The memory of the people telling the story is fallible. Now, in relation to the waiting ones, we hear the very start of their story, and they're still like first, first and a half generation. So this is still fresh. So I think I trust the fidelity of their story. But can you imagine like two generations down? Well, you're already starting to see a lot of cracks in their story. There's yes. still a lot of things they just don't understand. Right. I would say these are more second, third generation. That's true. I would see their like, parents the as status, first generation. Yeah, given the status of their names, they obviously gave them to themselves, not yeah. their parents didn't give Sl them to them. Slake, Savannah, Kusha are second generation Wastelander, and then their kids, third generation Wastelander. True. Another downside of a purely oral history is self-serving motives of the storyteller, which that kind of sounds like placing blame upon the storyteller. But when you're telling stories like to a friend, you're telling them a funny thing that happened the other day, you don't exaggerate out of a desire to deceive. You want to make it into a better story. Yeah. You want to make it funnier or you want to make yourself look better or make someone else look worse. You have ulterior motives. Yeah. Going back to Road Warrior, you want to make people think that you were awesome and threw your boomerang and cut someone's head off and then chopped another guy's fingers off and then you did a backflip into a hole. Right. <laughs> so did it really happen that way? We'll never know because we got that story through the oral history of that one person. Exactly. There's also the issue of consistency from one telling to the next. I think the waiting ones have an advantage that we'll see on Monday mostly. We see a little bit at the end here where they have this frame that they're passing, that they have a basic record, an artistic record of scenes that happened. Yeah. We don't get to see it this week. We don't. But it is there. And then one of the last things is that the interviewer's questions may intentionally or unintentionally influence the informant's response. So if Max is seeing this story for the first time, he may ask questions that savannah or slake might not know the answer to and they may surmise the answer based on what they do know or just make a best guess yeah and now that oral history is altered which is kind of what we do in this podcast <laughs> yes we do we have questions that arise and then we surmise the answer based on what we have in front of us and there have been many times over the two previous seasons in this season where something that we have surmised has now become canon to me. Yeah. That that's just the way it is now, even though it has almost no basis in reality. It's just something we figured out. 
Yeah. Like the family dog in the first movie being named Toby and Max being a fairy princess and things like that. Yeah. Uh, first comes to mind way back in season one where we talked about the love language of Jesse and Max. And Max's love language was quality time. Mm-hmm. And Jesse's love language was touch. I, I don't remember. I don't remember. Maybe that's not a good example then. It does have upsides though. Definitely an upside of this particular group. They have these wall paintings that they use to tell the story, but they're just like highlight points of the story. They need the oral story to fill in those gaps. And having an oral story as opposed to a written story conveys more of the emotional side of the tale. Something that the Smithsonian article listed as a strength that I find questionable as a strength, that I think it might be time to talk about their language. They list as a strength that it may contain unusual dialect or speech patterns. They put that as a strength, and I just don't think it's a strength. I think it's a weakness. That is what has happened to their language, which is still mostly English. Yeah. And very understandable, but it has obviously degraded. Let's take Slake's introduction of the tell, for instance. He says, this you knows, I be first tracker. So right there, instead of saying this you know, he says this you knows. He has an S there. It's a small change. And then he says, I be first tracker instead of I am first tracker. So their words are falling in and out of where they should be. They're not completely departed, but they're starting to depart. And he says, times past count, I done the tell, but it weren't me that tumbled Walker. It was Savannah. So that first part is pretty normal. Times past count. Instead of saying, I have done the tell, he says, I done the tell. So he drops a word out there. And then he uses a new vocabulary word. Instead of saying, it wasn't me that found Walker, he says, it weren't me that tumbled Walker. Yeah, I'm kind of curious about the replacement of the word tumbled. A lot of the other word replacements are a little more obvious as to how they got to that different word. For example, the word tell instead of story. Well, that's obvious how they made that jump. Yeah. So I'm not sure how they connected found to tumbled. Maybe they're taking the phrase stumble upon. Okay. Dropping the S from the front and calling yeah. tumble upon, tumbled. Yes, I like that. They do tend to just drop a syllable from a word like remembered. They say membered. So that makes sense. Okay, I like it. The important thing about this opening statement from Slake is that he acknowledges that he's the first tracker and that normally it is his job to convey the tell to the tribe, but because Savannah was the one that brought Walker to the crack in the earth, that he is going to step aside and she is going to tell the story instead. So I like that we get a little bit of a peek into the social structure of the tribe. The fact that he is the first tracker, he is the leader of the hunters, he is the nominal leader of the tribe, and yet Savannah also holds a position of respect, maybe not necessarily full authority, but definitely respect in the tribe. Before watching this with the intent of analyzing it, I genuinely thought Savannah was the leader of the tribe. I had forgotten about Slake and that he was so clearly labeled as the leader. I really thought Savannah was the leader. I'm pretty sure she's the oldest one there. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's maybe a little bit of misogyny that she isn't the leader? I think she was the leader before she left. Oh, okay. So she left because she was 
the oldest one yeah. and it was her turn to go. I'm pretty sure that there is a part of this tribe society that once you reach of a certain age, once you become an adult, it is your duty to pull a leaving, to head out either on your own or with a group and search for Walker. It's very Children of the Corn. I've only seen the end of that movie once. And I remember something about one of the boys, like on his 18th birthday kind of thing, was banished. Well, yeah, because no adults were allowed in that town. Yes. What this situation reminds me of is a situation from Fallout 3, which is the irradiated capital wasteland of the United States. And your character comes along and finds a settlement called Little Lamplight. Little Lamplight is full of children. And the thing about Little Lamplight is that it's no adults allowed. And it's that same type of thing. When you reach adulthood, you are banished from Little Lamplight. And the way that they keep their population up is kids wander in from out of the wasteland and they're given refuge in that city. And your character has to figure out a way to gain entrance to the city so that they can skirt through the back of Little Lamplight and get into a secret facility through a back door that can be found through that settlement. But the Waiting Ones and Little Lamplight, I find them to be very similar. It does seem to be a theme of groups of children where they are stuck a little bit perhaps on the idea of to stay in this community you have to be a child if you're no longer a child you have to go for whatever reason the waiting ones it's out of duty Mm -hmm. that okay now it's your turn to go and try and find help for the rest of us yeah you grow up in the tribe you birth your children And then once you reach of a certain age, you're gone. Because all through their history, the people have been going out looking for help, looking for Walker, pulling, leaving. And it probably was just that Savannah was on her own because she was the only one in her age group. They probably have a certain point in the year based on the seasons and whatnot where, okay, who's of an age to take a leaving? And then that group pulls a leaving. It seems that, yes, that would be advantageous. If they want to be rescued, the most capable among them, the adults, would sacrifice their own relative comfort and safety to go out into the desert and try and find help. But there comes a point where that just is not an advantage anymore. Waiting is no longer advantageous. That it's time for them to let go of being rescued and just make the best that they have here. Well, that's all well and good, but they've built their entire religion out of this idea of Walker coming back and bringing them back to the high scrapers. Like, we're going to talk about that more specifically next week, but in the context of this story, as great as it sounds for them to just get over it... Right. Like, that's never going to happen. And I I don't want to be the kind of person to stop a good improv flow and not use a yes and. (laughs) But in this instance... I think when you frame this story of theirs and the presence of Walker and how they've been treating him, when you frame it like a religion, well, of course, they're not going to give up. Many, many, many people in this world base their lives and their outlook and their philosophies on religion and on waiting for their religious deity to return to the earth. And we've been doing it for thousands of years. So why would this group of kids give up after how long have they been there? Maybe 15 years? Yeah. That's not that long. Of course, they're going to keep the faith. Yeah. I mean, for some of them, it's their entire life. Oh, yes. I was a little dismayed by the number of kids that were there, the population of 52. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Because it's not viable. 
I'm just wondering where they all came from. How many of them were on the plane? How many of them were born from the adults on the plane after they crashed? And how many of them are children of children? I know that this plane, which we're going to, we say this a lot, we're going to learn more about the plane later, but it wasn't just a regular schmegular plane flying from A to B. It was a purposeful load of people and families. But that's just an awful lot of kids. I'm confused by that. So I'm looking forward to learning more yeah. about that. There'll be plenty of time for that. So Savannah takes this large frame, which more or less looks like a TV screen when you think about it. When you have people look through a box to direct their attention, they're simulating a television. But she takes this box and she turns to the crowd. And she says, this ain't one buddy's story. It's the story of us all. We got it mouth to mouth. You got to listen it and member because what you hears today, you got to tell the birth tomorrow. So they repeat this story that we're going to hear as a way to preserve their own history. And everybody listens to the same thing over and over again, and it's drilled into them so they remember this specific story, because it is their shared history. And the recounting of the story is quite delightful, and I'm looking forward to it next week. Yeah, it's going to be a good time going through that. Next week is going to consist largely of story time with Savannah. She's going to tell about the end of the world and how brave Captain Walker took to the sky to outrun Mr. Death. But as we're going to find out at the end of Monday's Minute, it wasn't all sunshine and roses because they ran into trouble along the way. So that'll be Monday. As for this weekend, we've got our extra show, Anarchy Road. This week on Anarchy Road, Jack is going to go on a smashing spree in the Broken Clock Museum. Peter and the Lost Boys are going to infiltrate the Pirate Cove in order to steal Hook's namesake. But Peter is going to be distracted by a chance to finally watch his son play a game of baseball. So come over to our Patreon page. It's only three bucks a month. Join us for that as we talk about Hook five minutes at a time. But other than that, we'll be back on Monday with more Mad Max. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for MadMaxMinute, and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link Join our Patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 54 Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time. Everybody say-